Hey there, welcome to the Alenia Church Podcast, your place to catch all of Alenia Church's previous messages, messages designed to equip you on your journey with Christ. Well, today we continue our series, Origin Stories. Every time we encounter a hero or a villain in a comic book, there's an origin story that defines why they are who they are. Well, today we learn about the origin story of the church. The days following the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven were full of excitement and uncertainty. The apostles worked hard to not only spread the good news of Jesus, but to also bring structure and order to the newly found congregations. And today we learn how the church began and the events that changed it in the years to follow. Enjoy. Well, good morning, Elenia. teacher this morning. We're going to go to school this morning anyway, all right? Let me uh, read our passage to you. Would everybody just stand with me as we, uh, as we read God's Word? It's short, so you won't have to stand very long. Um, Matthew 16, 18, and 19, it says this, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We pray for just your blessing on this word, uh, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Um, Before I get started, I want to say, if you will follow us on social media, and then there'll be an email that will go out this week, uh, but we're going to be collecting uh, food for the MTSU Food Bank. Um, they are really low right now, and so we want to come alongside of them and help them, and uh, they, they, it's for uh, uh, students that are in quarantine. Isn't that crazy? So when they put kids in quarantine, uh, they have a food bank for them, so um, also, everybody that puts stuff up on social media, they've been telling me to smile more for the camera. <laughs> so, I'm trying to smile and preach at the same time. It's hard, y'all. It is so hard. Uh, so, uh, last week we talked about the Bible, and uh, this is a book that I am uh, pulling a lot of my information from. I, I mentioned it last week. It's Church History in Plain Language. Uh, by Bruce by Bruce Shelley, uh, and so uh, we um, again. I apologize for the uh, overtly really long message last week. Uh, my wife listened to it, uh, and she was like, "Babe, that was really long." So, so now she's on the front row this morning, and she will do this. She'll be like, "That's enough. Uh, kill the message." Um, so, real quick, I want to talk to you about history. And uh, one of the things that's important about history is if you don't understand your history, you're bound to repeat it, all right? But not only that, if you understand your history, it unlocks some things about you that you may not have known. My, my uh, papaw, so I'm from East Tennessee, and it's papaw. It's papaw and mammal, uh, not Gigi, not Meemaw, not Mimi, not all those other things. It's papaw and mammal. And uh, my papa is a uh, really big into, uh, uh, what is it called? What, what, what do you do, the uh, uh, ancestry, you know, looking back and looking at your family tree. And so he, he's been doing a lot of digging, and my, I remember my great-grandpa, his name was John, and uh, I, uh, I remember him, we called him Grandpa, 
and uh, uh, he lived with us for a while. He died. He was born in 1900, and he lived until 1993. So I was thinking about all the things that he had seen, and I had so much fun uh, when he lived with us. And I remember in his old age, we were always having fights with him to get in the shower because I guess when you get to that old age, you don't you don't want to take showers, and so. Uh, where I, remember, I remember that vividly for some reason, um, but uh, his parents, and I hope I'm getting this right, so if my papa's listening to this, I'll probably get an email next week. It's like, you got that all wrong, but that's okay. Uh, it's preaching, so I make up stories, right? Um, so my great-great-grandpa, um, I'll be honest with you, I don't remember his name, uh, but my, the Pickwell family comes from England. In fact, I have, uh, we were going to do this for one of our anniversaries, and this thing called COVID hit, and then we decided to start a church, and that kind of messed everything up too. Uh, but one day on an anniversary, maybe the 20th, babe, maybe we can do this, I want to take my wife over to England because there is a Pickwell Manor that you can stay in. It's on the west coast of England, and uh, there's all sorts of history there, and it's so cool. But anyway, this great-grandpa that moved here, uh, my papa saw in his writings, he said he, he wanted to start fresh. He wanted to start his life over fresh. He was 23 years old. Why would you need to start 23 years old? Why would you need to start fresh? Well, when he was in England and he went to the town that he was from, uh, he noticed some things in the uh, census books that didn't make sense. And what he discovered was my great-great-grandpa, his mom had him out of wedlock. And so her parents, which now I'm starting, I need a whiteboard to keep this straight, which is my, so if he's my great-great, she's my great-great-great, so they would be my great-great-great-great, right? They ostracized her. They adopted him, and they kicked her out of the house. And so he, my, my papa started drawing all the lines together and realizing that he lived his life, grew up as a, a child out of wedlock, and there was all that stigma that went with it. And so what did he do? He moved to the States. And so when he was telling me this story, it, it was so fascinating because I realized there's all this history in, in, in behind me that I didn't even know about. And my, my grandpa, my you know, my great-grandpa, um, he helped, uh, he, he was leading things in his church, he was running a bus ministry, he wrote three novels, um, which I still have, my kids have read them, it's about the end of the world, which is very fascinating, um, but I have all this history, and it's so cool, because it really enriches who you are, because you realize that you're not just, you're not just a blip on the radar, you've got all these people that came behind you, and so what I want you to understand today is I want you to understand where you come from as a church. What is the church? Now, when you look at the Bible, the Bible is going to mention the church in two ways. It's going to talk about, I call it the big C church. When the Bible talks about the church of Jesus Christ, we're talking about the big C church, the global church. All right. But then Paul would write to the church in Ephesus or the church in Corinth or whatever the case may be. So the church can be the large church, it could be the small church. So anytime you hear me say the big C church, I mean the global church, all right? So here we're, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the big C church, and we're going to start all the way back 
back before 70 AD. And I'm going to give you a lot of details. It's not going to be nearly as boring as last week. Uh, it's not going to be as long as last week. Um, but I know, you know, I just, I got so much, I got so many comments, babe, on last week. They'll be like, I wish you'd preach longer messages. That was so good. We loved it. <laughs> it's fantastic. All right. So the first thing you need to know is originally Christianity was not this separate thing. Originally, Christianity was simply a sect of Judaism, all right? It existed underneath uh, the Jewish faith. In fact, if you look at Acts 21.20, it says, When they heard it, they glorified God uh, and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous about the law. So you had a lot of Jews who came to faith in Christ. They were still keeping the law. And it was very much just a disparity between how you interpreted the Old Testament. That's really the thing that differentiated it. So if you look at the schools of thought in uh, ancient Judaism, you had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Essenes. I think I'm saying that right. I'm sorry if I'm not. My church history professor from way back, I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, you had those three schools of thought. They all interpreted the Old Testament differently. They just lumped Christianity in. Well, now we've got this fourth thing. They're, they're interpreting the Old Testament differently as well. And you can see this if you go to Acts chapter 7. I'm not going to read this to you. The very first martyr for the Christian church was Stephen. All right? Now, Stephen, he goes into this, uh, this message. They drag him in. And what does he do? He starts all the way back at the beginning. And he starts talking about the history of Israel. He starts talking about Moses, and he starts talking about the law, and he starts talking about the tabernacle. And then he just kind of, it's almost like a, a switch flipped for him, and then he just gets really aggravated, and he's like, you know what? The, the tabernacle could not house God. And what you guys have done, you've, your entire lives, all the way back, all the way through the Old Testament, you've been killing prophets, and you're still doing it today. And so what do they do? They drag him out, and they stone him. And so what you see there is you see that there were, was very much a difference in how they interpreted the Old Testament law. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they all saw the law. They saw the tabernacle. They saw all that as a permanent institution. It wasn't going to change. Stephen saw it as it was temporary. It was all, everything in the Old Testament was pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. And so what did they do? They dragged him out and they stoned him. Interestingly, uh, at that stoning was a guy named Saul who wrote half of the New Testament, right? Paul was there. He was the one who collected everybody's cloaks so they could get a good wind-up with the rock to kill Stephen. So just kind of give you some, some imagery. So Christianity really split from Judaism around 70 A.D., and this is the fall of Jerusalem. And there was a big rebellion, and the, uh, they, they all rose up the... Uh, the, the Jewish nation rose up. They went to fight against the Roman Empire. They were sick and tired of everything. Roman Empire is big. They're the big boy on block. And they took care of business and they squashed the rebellion. Now, um, Jesus says when they were talking about, hey, look at, the, look at the temple. It's so beautiful. and Look how amazing it is. And Jesus is like, hey, you know, there's going to come a day where no stone 
is, uh, is not overturned. Like everything is going to get thrown down. If you go to Israel today and you go to the Temple Mount, they have excavations down at the base of the Temple Mount. So you have the whole western wall. Some people call it the Wailing Wall. But all the way down to the corner of the Temple Mount, there are piles, piles of stones from that temple that are just been thrown off. So what Jesus predicted literally came true. The, the Romans came in and they squashed everything. They tore down the temple. They took every stone that they could find. They threw it off. And the stone that the temple was made of, they set fire to everything. They said you could hear explosions from 100 miles away because the rock was literally exploding. Um, and so that rebellion, people fled. And the Christians, they fled that rebellion, and that put a bad taste in the mouth of the Jews. And the Jews said to the Roman Empire, hey, we're Jewish, they're Christian. Up until that time, Christians had some protection under the Jewish faith. But once the Jews said, hey, the Christians aren't a part of us, it was open season on the Christians. And this is what happened for them that they be started to become persecuted. So we need to really talk about persecution and why persecution was happening. And you can start to see some similarities to, to today, but it's not anything like it was then, all right? When people today are like, well, I'm being persecuted, let me talk to you about persecution, okay? Let's talk about that a little bit. Why were the Christians persecuted? They were persecuted because they were distinct from everybody around them. There is safety in conformity. You want to be safe, you want to not be ostracized, you want to be accepted, conform. They did not conform. They were distinct. In fact, to Tertullian, he says, we have a reputation of living aloof from the crowds. So they were distinctly different from everybody that was living around them. In fact, if you look at the New Testament word that talks about the Christians in during that time that calls them saints, there's this word hagios. And hagios simply means holy ones. But the root of that, the root of that word means different. They were different from everybody around them. They were different in three primary ways. Uh, one of the ways was how they treated children. It was not uncommon for a pagan uh, to, but let's say they had a girl and the 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 father of the household say, I didn't want a girl. Take it out to the woods and leave the girl. So there was how they treated the children. They would come and they would start collecting the children and taking care of them because they had a high regard for the sanctity of human life. They had a high regard for the sanctity of human life. That was very distinct for them in that age. Um, sex was a big thing as well. Let's talk about sex. Baby, let's talk about. <laughs> so the, the pagan religion of the time, they had, they had temple prostitutes. Um, they thought of sex very loosely. Uh, you had these Christians who had a high regard for what sex was about, that it was in the sanctity of marriage. Um, they had a lot of rumors that were flying around about the Christians. 
because their meetings were called agape meetings or love feast. So they were like, what is this like sex thing going on with the Christians and behind closed doors? Seriously. Um, they thought that the Christians were cannibals. Hey, when you eat of this bread, you eat of my body. When you drink of this cup, you drink of my blood. And the pagans were not allowed into these meetings. And so behind closed doors, you're like, well, they, all they're doing is they're, they're eating people and having sex. That's what they're doing. <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm not joking. They, they were thought of as atheists. That sounds crazy, right? They were thought of as atheists because the pagan religion of the time was you worshipped a lot of things including Caesar. You worshipped a lot of different gods. And there was, one of my favorite dissertation words, there was this bifurcation or this dividing, you love that word, right? There was this dividing of Christians from the rest of society because they lived different. They're like, no, 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 we can't do that. That's, that's not what Christ would want us to do. No, we can't. No, the, every child is special. No, no, no. This, this, is, this sex thing is for it's prostitutes, temple prostitutes. No, this is a thing between a husband and a wife. And they were persecuted for their beliefs. They were persecuted because they lived differently. Let me just say this to the students in the room. You have the opportunity probably more so than most of the adults in this room, to set yourself apart and live different among your classmates. And when you do that, you need to understand that you will be ridiculed, you will be called different, you will be called a holy roller, you will be called every name in the book because you don't conform to what the masses want you to do. And that is okay. That is okay. You need to embrace that and you need to be comfortable with it because God has your back. Because those guys and those girls who are trying to rally around you and get you to do what they want you to do, they're not going to be there in five years, three years, two years. God's going to be there for you. So then you, got, then you got Nero. So Nero comes along, and he's about, uh, I think, 64 A.D., and he has the big persecution that you read about. It probably is the persecution that killed Peter and that killed Paul. And there was a fire in Rome, and he blamed it on the Christians, and so he just went hard on Christians. So when we talk about persecution, let's talk about persecution. So he would take animal skins and he would take a dead animal and he would wrap a Christian in a dead animal skin and then let wild animals be set on them. Would tie women to wild bulls and let them run the streets. Uh, would literally take Christians and put them in his garden and set them on fire to light his garden. All right? That's persecution. Now, it caused some problems because there were some there were some things that you were supposed to do as a Roman citizen and one of those was Caesar worship and so what you would do is you would take a little bit of incense you would go into the temple 
you would burn the incense, and you would say, Caesar is Lord. So guess what the Christians wouldn't do? They would say, no, there's only one Lord, and it is Jesus Christ. So what they were forced to do under torture, death, ostracized, losing their way of gaining income, all sorts of things, they were forced to do these things. And oftentimes they didn't. In fact, you read this when you go to Revelation 12, 11. It's not on the screen. Um, this is what John says. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even to the point of death. In fact, a lot of, a lot of scholars believe that when you look at Revelation and you see the red dragon, the red dragon is Satan, and when you see the beast from the ocean, the beast from the ocean is Caesar. And when you see the beast from the land, the beast from the land is the religious society or the religious organization in that time. And that what the Christians were doing is they were fighting against those entities by the word of their testimony and by not bowing a knee. Now, let's move on in this historical narrative. Also, what happened is uh, some of these Christians folded. And church leaders were like, well, what do we do? What do we do with the people that renounced Jesus? Now they want to come back into the church. And there was the thing called penance that came about. Well, you're going to have to show that you're sorry. You're going to have to show that you're repentant. You're going to have to show penance. Now, for... The Catholic Church, that's where the Catholic Church gets their third sacrament. We're Protestants. We have the Lord's Supper. We have baptism. Catholics have several sacraments. That's where the third sacrament came from, penance, is because they felt like they needed a way to let people back in the church. Now, I didn't say this at the beginning. I should have said it at the beginning. Everybody that I'm talking about right now including you, if you lived in 70 A.D., you were Catholic, all right? But you can't think Catholic like you think today Catholic. Catholic simply means universal. So there was one church. It wasn't like you had the Baptist church and the Presbyterian church, and then you had the, and then you had the Nazarene church down there on the corner of Jerusalem and Straight Street. That's not the way it works. There was, there was one church in each city, and every church globally was working to, to align themselves in belief, and that was called the Catholic Church, the universal church, all right? So that's where the third sacrament of penance comes from. You ever wonder where these sacraments come from? That's where it comes from. It's because they're trying to figure out, well, how do we let people back in? All right, now let's move on. Organizing the church. So they, the church is growing. It's exploding. They're trying to figure out what to do. And they start creating uh, positions of, of authority or positions of leadership or positions of service. So if you look at Acts 6, 1 through 6, this is on the screen. It says, in those days as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews. Hellenistic Jews were Jews that left Israel. They got cultured, and then they came back. All right? That's what a Hellenistic Jew means. It had, they had a lot of Greek influence in them. All right? So they're arguing with each other, like, hey, this ain't right. 
says uh, Hebraic Jews, that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve, do you know who they are, summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God because apparently this was important even to them. All right? It would not be good for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and a bunch of other people I don't know how to say their name. <laughs> and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. Antioch was, I'll talk about Antioch in a second. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed, laid their hands on them. All right? So let's talk about what this office is. It's called a deacon. All right? So if you ever went to a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church, Methodist church, and you had deacons, this is where deacons come from. The word deacon literally means minister or a servant. That's it. It just means minister or a servant. All right? And they literally were responsible for helping serve the people in the church, all right? Then the second thing you had is a pastor or an elder or a bishop, all right? Let's look at Acts 14.23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed to them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 1 Timothy 5.17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor especially those who work is preaching and teaching. Ephesians 4, 11 13, And he gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, to equip the saints of the, uh, for the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in faith and in knowledge of God's Son, growing in maturity with stature measured by Christ's fullness. Now, this works through some words real quick. Elder or presbyter, if some say it, um, it means the same thing, all right? Um, they're, they're also were known, they were also known as bishops. Bishop literally just means overseer, all right? Um, pastor is another word. It only occurs one time in the New Testament, and it's that, that time where it talks about some evangelists, some prophets, some pastors. Pastor literally means shepherd, all right? So a lot of people will intertwine all of these roles together. Uh, Paul wrote of elders or a body of elders, plural, all right? Um, but then you look at about 100, somewhere around there, 100 AD, uh, there was this man named Ignatius from Antioch, and he regularly spoke of a singular bishop or an overseer, a body of presbyters, and a company of deacons. So you spoke of this regularly. Here's what I want to get through to you. Everybody did it different. Even in the beginning, everybody did it different. Even in that model that Ignatius said, every church in every city, had, they, they worked that out. They fleshed it out differently. There is, in my opinion, no formula that the New Testament gives on how this is supposed to be structured. How it's supposed to be structured, in my opinion, is with integrity and accountability. And so when we organized Alinea Church, we set it up so that we would have integrity and we would have accountability. 
So it's not just me up here calling all the shots because I'm, I know me. I might drive you off a cliff, and I don't want to do that. I need some people around me that go, you're going the wrong way. All right? And so that's important to know. Um, but it did become, in the early church, a widespread uh, pattern. But it took, it took a while. Like Alexandria is uh, another city. It was in e- Egypt. They didn't adopt this model until like 100, 100 A.D. All right? Another thing is this idea of the Lord's Day. One of the, uh, probably the second most question I get moving here is why do, you, why do you not keep the Sabbath? Sabbath's on a Saturday. Why don't you keep a Sabbath? What, you know, and then they tell me how Constantine changed the Sabbath and all that stuff. Let me, put, let me pop that balloon right now. Constantine didn't change the Sabbath. All right? Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. The early church from the very beginning was meeting on the Lord's Day, which was Sunday. They were From the very beginning, Sabbath was at the end of the week. That was a rest time. That was a Saturday, all right? So the Lord's Day from very early on was Acts 27. They're meeting on the first day of the week. So Paul even talks about taking up an offering on the first day of the week. Over and over and over you see this in the New Testament. All right, moving on as I'm... I'm She's about to give me the, the signal. So moving on, let's move into from, the, that was the apostolic church, just moved to the Catholic and the Christian Roman Empire, which is all fun. Um, so like I said, Catholic means universal and orthodox. And one of the things that really marks this season is this fight between heresy and orthodoxy. Heresy means that's not right. Orthodoxy means that's right. That's all that means. Right? So when you see when you hear orthodox, that just means true or right. Okay? Um, so people were thinking up of all sorts of things. This one guy was saying that Jesus wasn't a man. This one guy was saying Jesus wasn't God. This I mean, people were saying all sorts of crazy things. There was this thing called Gnosticism that Paul was fighting against, especially in Galatians. When you read Galatians, he's fighting against Gnosticism. Gnosticism was this special knowledge, you had this special belief. Which is a warning to us today because if anybody says, I've got a special word from God that does not line up with this, okay, you got to follow this, all right? Um, in fact, we talked about that guy last week, uh, Montanus. That's what he was doing. He was like, I got this special word. Didn't line up with this, okay? Um, so they started coming up with these things called creeds. And one of the creeds that you hear a lot, one is called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles didn't write it, uh, but it was, came from 2nd century Rome. So we're talking in the hundreds, right? And it says, I believe in God Almighty and in Christ Jesus, His only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was buried on the third day and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. Whence he comes to judge the living and the dead and then the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, the life everlasting. So they would have these, they would have these phrases that they would come along and say. In fact, there was one over here. That's what I was looking at before the service. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, not on the screen. This is, this is bonus stuff. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. A lot of people believe, a lot of scholars believe, that that is one of the earliest recorded creeds that you can find in the New Testament. Like, like I'm saying early, I'm talking like 35 A.D., like five years after Christ. So when you see all these people that were persecuted and you think, how in the world did they have the faith? Read that. They knew Bob, who saw Jesus walking around after he was crucified. So no wonder this thing spread so fast is because you had eyewitness accounts. So these creeds, going back to these creeds, these creeds were, the, were these things that people would rally around so they could stick to the, keeping the main thing the main thing and knowing that they all believed the same thing. Now, you have the con- conversion of Constantine. Constantine was about 300 A.D., and he came to Christ, and he was an emperor of Rome, all right? And when he did that, it changed everything because just decades earlier, Christians are being persecuted. Now you have this Roman emperor, and he's like, he, he's like, no, Christianity's great. And he comes to Christ. He lived as a Christian. He raised his family as a Christian. All right. He called the Council of Nicaea, and he brought all the bishops together. And that was one of the questions that people had last week. Who decided who was going to be the, the, the people? Can you put that map up for me? I, I, got, a, I got a fancy map for you. All right, I should have a laser pointer. You feel like you're back in college, right? So these are all like the major cities of the early church. You've got Hippo over here on the left, not as in hippopotamus, but Hippo. It's right here. All right, you got Hippo, you got Lions, you got Rome, all right, you got Thessalonica, you got Corinth, you got Alexandria, it's down here in Egypt, right? And so what these, what these churches would do is they would select their main guy that they really trusted, their bishop, and they would send them to these councils. And so they would all gather and they would help make decisions on, hey, what do we really believe about this? So Constantine called the Council of Nicaea, all right? He pulls them all in, and you've got to think about this. These guys walk into this room. One guy is missing an eye. Because he was persecuted for his faith. One guy can't use his hands because he was so tortured they've been disfigured. One person's walking with a limp because he was tortured. They, these guys who were persecuted walk into this room in the Council of Nicaea under Constantine. Constantine says, welcome. Uh, so glad you're here. And he walks out of the room and he lets them make the decision. All right. So that's how these councils came together. So what did this Council of Nicaea do? They set up that Alexandria, Antioch, Rome, and Jerusalem were really important. They were the preeminent bishops, so they kind of started having some sway. So one of the bad things about Constantine becoming a Christian is the Christian church started adopting some of the models of government from the Roman Empire, all right? Then the bishops start playing politics, like, well, I want to be more important, or I want to be more important. And then it all goes down from there. And Antioch, remember I talked about Antioch. Antioch was a town of half a million people. 50% of them were Christians. 50% of the town of Antioch, of half a million people. All right? And during this time, the Bishop of Rome grew in influence. 
which is going to inform what we talk about next week. Like, how did we come up with the Pope? This is how this started to happen, all right? And so Constantine becomes a Christian. Then another guy, Theodosius, he becomes a Christian. He's the next emperor. He doesn't become a Christian and just say, hey, Christianity is okay. He says it's illegal not to be a Christian. Yeah. And so he calls his own council, and he doesn't invite anybody from the West. So Rome's not invited. All right. Rome, Hippo, Lion, none of those guys. We don't want those guys. We only, we only want the Eastern guys. And he says that the Eastern people are more important. So if you think that there's a Catholic church and a Protestant church, I thought that for my entire life, that's not true. There's the Catholic church. There's the Protestant church. There's the Eastern Orthodox church. Because what did Constantine do? He moved the capital of, uh, of Rome away from Rome and put it in Constantinople. Istanbul was once Constantinople. Istanbul was once Constantinople. They might be giants. No one knows that song? So sad. Um, Go to Spotify. Listen to it. So this is how you start to have the divide of of of, of the Christian church. You start to have a left side and a right side. And they start playing politics. Um... One of, my, one of my favorite stories, you wonder how excommunication came about. So excommunication was this idea that the bishop had all the power. I'm doing okay. The bishop had all the power, and he could kick people out of the church. And if you're out of the church, you're not saved anymore. So in the city of Thessalonica, they're going to have a chariot race. All right. So in this chariot race, one of the favorites of the chariot race, the government found out that this guy might be gay. So what did they do? They threw him in prison. Well, the people of Thessalonica got ticked off. They stormed the prison. They set the guy free so he can run his race. All right? Theodosius gets so mad at the next chariot race, he closes the doors, locks them, puts guards at them, and at his signal, he kills 7,000 people in Thessalonica in retribution. Now, the bishop of Milan, his name was Ambrose, he was like, what in the world are you doing? This is what he writes. He said, I cannot deny that you've got zeal for the faith. You can only atone for your sins, though, by tears, by penance, by humbling your soul before God. You were a man. He's writing this to the Caesar, the head of the Roman Empire. You are a man, and as you have sinned as a man, you must repent. No angel, no archangel can forgive you. God alone can forgive you, and he forgives only those who repent. And he refused to give Theodosius communion. So Theodosius finally, he repents, and what he does is he stands up in front of the church not just one time, but several times before Ambrose would say that he could have communion. He stands up, he takes off his Roman royal garb, and he confesses his repentance that he has done something wrong to the church. This is where we get the idea from excommunication. Because the bishop realized, I can wield some power over these rulers if they really want to be in the church. All right? Now, I'm going to put a pin in that. We're going to continue next week because I know this is so exciting.
because I forgot to say something at the very beginning. I didn't really forget to say it. This is strategery. <laughs> you cannot talk about the church and not talk about Jesus. Amen. You cannot talk about the church and not talk about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, it says in Scripture, is the cornerstone of the church. It says Ephesians 2, 19 and 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together. He is the cornerstone. Come on up, Spencer. I didn't tell him when, to get, when I needed the keys. He's, he's looking at me like, now? I'm like, yeah, come on. <laughs> Number two, Jesus is the head. He is the head. It says he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that we, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Ephesians 1.22 says, And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as a head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Not only is he the cornerstone, not only is he the head, but he has made us children. Look what it says in John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so you've got to think about this early church when you had the Jews coming together and they're like, oh my gosh, this Old Testament prophecy, this, this Jesus that we just crucified, he really was the Messiah. I'm so sorry, God, please, I repent. I'm following you now. I'm pursuing this person of Jesus Christ. And then you had this guy from Antioch that comes down, and he's got all this Greek influence and stuff in him. And, and, and he knows things that them Jews don't know, but he was like, Who is, who's this guy again? Jesus. He's the Son of God. What? I want to follow this guy, Jesus. And so you've got this Jew, and then you've got this Greek standing side by side. He's like, what are you doing here? Well, I follow this guy, Jesus. Well, what are you doing here? I I follow this guy, Jesus, too. Isn't this awesome? That means you're a child of God. That means I'm a child of God. That means you're a son of the king. That means I'm a son of the king. You're a daughter of the king. Yeah, we come from different backgrounds, but we're all part of the same family. And you got to look at the early church. Come on, you got to look at the early church. They were so different. They were so different. Not just from society. Yeah, they look different. They smelled different. They talked different. They walked different. They loved different. You got letters of, of these Roman emperors going, I don't know what to do with these people. They just love different. There's one guy who was like, these Christians, they're all atheists. They don't believe in any of the gods that we believe in, but they're caring for our people better than we care for our people. Not only were they different from society, they were different from each other. They were so diverse. You got a guy from Ethiopia, you got a guy from Rome, you got a guy from Antioch, you got a guy from Israel, and they're coming in into one unified church, and they're standing at the foot of the cross because all ground is level at the foot of the cross.
and they can't, no wonder the church spread. No wonder it exploded. No wonder, because it was rich with love. It was, it was so different. It was so infectious. And I think that there is a, there is a, this, today, especially in our day, there is a, there is a call that we have to take up as a church and be like, all right, conformity is for the birds. It's time that we stick out like a sore thumb. It's time that our love sticks out above everything else. It's time that our, our, our message, our talk, our walk, how we conduct ourselves, how we interact with people on Facebook, come on. It's time that how we present ourselves, it should look drastically different from what's going on in the world. So much so that that aroma is infectious. And they're like, man, I want some of that. I, want, I need some of that. And that's what, that's what God wants for you. And that's, that's what I want for you. I want, that's what I want for everybody who walks in these doors. That you have every right. You have every right to become a child of God. I don't know if all of us are. I can't make that assumption. I think that'd be horrible for me as a pastor to get up here and go, you know what, I'm preaching to a bunch of Christians. Because there might be somebody in here that's just, as Jesus says, you've, you've cast out demons in his name, but you get to the end and he's like, I, I, I never knew you. Because following Jesus is an abandonment of who you used to be and an embracing of who Jesus is. It is, as Spurgeon says, it is a daily repentance. And so I want to give you an opportunity to accept Christ. So just bow your heads and close your eyes. And the reason I do this is because I want to know if I need to pray for you. And if, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you've never followed Jesus that life-changing gospel of love and forgiveness. Would you raise your hand because I can pray for you right now? Okay, if you would like to become a follower of Jesus today, we do this every Sunday. You can pray this out loud. You can just repeat after me. We ask everybody to do this out loud for the sake of those who are doing it for the first time. Say, dear Jesus, I love you. I for, repent for my ways. And I begin following you. Come into my life. Make me new. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord. And believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. If you prayed to receive Christ at the end of that message, would you let us know? We would love to put a free gift in your hand and some resources to help you on this new journey with Jesus. Just go to alineachurch.org forward slash connect and fill out the short form. If you would like to partner with this ministry, you can do so by going to alineachurch.org forward slash give. There you can make an easy tax deductible gift to further the reach of the gospel through Alinea Church. Would you also pray about becoming a monthly partner through your financial giving? 
our site makes it easy to set up a recurring schedule. Our prayer is that we are able to begin video recording these messages in the 2022 year, and your giving will help make that possible. Please take a moment to share this message, subscribe, like, and comment wherever you get your regular diet of podcasts. It helps us by getting the word out about what God is doing here in Middle Tennessee. Last but not least, if you live in the Murfreesboro area, please come by and visit. We meet at Oakland Middle School at 10 a.m. We are a church family that will welcome you with open arms. Remember, God sees you, He loves you, and He wants the best for you. God bless.